This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Yeah, so so welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, I'm Rosie. Um, I'm Sophie's editor, as she said, at Verso. Um, I'm also the editor-in-chief uh, and one of the collective of Salvage, where we've also had the pleasure of publishing Sophie a bunch of times, including in the latest issue. Um, I would like to start by reading actually one of the first sentences in Sophie's book. I think it sets the tone for the conversation really well. So she writes, So, the left is trying to take grandma away and confiscate kids. And this is supposed to be progressive? What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) So I want to start by asking you, Sophie, to talk about... um, what, what is a family? What does it do? What is its role? What do you mean by it? And why are you so upset about it? <laughs> I hate my dad. <laughs> um, the family under capitalism is many things. Um, and famously, Margaret Thatcher positioned it as the antithesis of society. Um, say that there's no such thing as society, there are individual men and women, and there are families. And um, this was taken up, as you know, Rosie, because it was published by Verso, by the Marxist feminists Michelle Barrett and Mary Bakintosh, who basically sort of agreed with Thatcher, uh, albeit from a sort of diametrically opposed political perspective, um, and they titled their book The Antisocial Family because they wanted to show how the family um, is destructive of the social, uh, which is sort of a, perhaps a counterintuitive idea, if I wanted to begin for that reason with that. Um, another sort of perhaps complicating and you know, counterintuitive way to begin is to say, I'm not sure the family exists. Um, it's a fantasy, you know, and it's an ideal. Um, but, of course, it has real material force as a disciplinary order. Um, so I'm not really sure there is one out there necessarily, but at the same time, we're all living in it. Um, and in full surrogacy now, I try to explore that a little bit and explore the, the contradictory way in which the family is this sort of um, image of wholeness and autonomy and self-management, which is in reality... Um, you know, produced by all these, you know, quote-unquote surrogates the world over in the new international division of labor. So there are all these sort of reproductive, racialized, feminized workers who, as Kathy Weeks puts it in her little image of this, like, excised from the family photo, you know. Um, And, yeah, um, 
My friend and comrade, Emmy O'Brien, writes in her forthcoming book for Pluto, Family Abolition, that the family ideal, right, is bolstered through state um, uh, and juridical and legal recognition. Uh, it's a regulatory regime, a set of interconnected administrative policies and legal codes encouraging and subsidizing heterosexual marriage, the construction of single family residences, parental authority, and family-based property ownership. Okay, so <laughs> this is sort of web of like family ideal incentivization. But I'll stop sort of um, hedging, I guess. Um, historically, left, queer, black, and feminist theorists have defined the family as um, a microcosm of the nation state, um, a sort of legal category necessary for class consolidation, and the accumulation of both capital and property um, as a site of ideological reproduction and socialization, um, as a sort of rhetorical trope that right-wingers use, um, an institution producing competitiveness, individualism, atomization, and isolation, as a system for servicing debt, and as a sort of fantasy about blood and biogenetics, right? But the most important definition I think all of those things are important, actually, and you'll definitely have to engage them if you want to critique the family. But the most important definition, as Kathy Weeks has recently argued, and I agree with her, is um, the privatization of care. So what is the family? It is the privatization of care. A family is a unit of privatized care, a private household. So what is family abolition? It's the communization of care. Um, as such, you know, the family functions um, like alongside the famously hidden abode of production, I'm talking to a lot of Marxists here, so I feel like I should say this, as a sort of even more hidden abode, right? The, the social or domestic factory where workers are manufactured. Um, so yeah, the family um, in capitalism is, uh, to quote Mario Mieli, uh, the cell of the social tissue. Great, thank you. I mean, it sounds great. <laughs> um, I actually wanted to read a bit of a longer section um, where in the book you um, preempt a lot, a lot of the outrage that, um, that often comes uh, when we talk about abolishing family. So give me a second, it will, it's a little long, but I think it's worth that. At this juncture, perhaps you are thinking, okay, this is all very well, but the term abolish seems provocative and toxic in this context, not to mention needlessly misleading in 2022. Come on, we don't want to do with families what we want to do with prisons, do we? Certainly not black and brown and indigenous and or queer working class families. Isn't family abolition, especially without the white family or bourgeois qualifier, when we really get down to it? fantastical indulgence for relatively affluent white socialists or queer settlers, or at least atheist feminists at the imperial court. Otherwise, how could one possibly talk about abolishing a family in, say, a Palestinian organizing context in which the indigenous family is always already pre-abolished by the genocidal occupying power? How can one, say, abolish the family to the detainees in refugee camps separated purposely? purposefully from their kinfolk, fleeing El Salvador, Guatemala, Sudan, Colombia, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan. In what sense would one expect LGBT people to sign up 
to an agenda that sounds like a demand to forego access to the same hospital kin visitation rights and procreative technologies straight people have. Perhaps it would be better to call for an expanded family or a reformed version of the family rather than an abolished one. It makes no sense to run the risk of appearing to compare the downsides of colonized people's kinship practices with the carceral state. Surely it's reckless to seek to defend a politics that might be construed as saying that families, the very thing that often works tirelessly to protect black, migrant and indigenous youth from violence, hiding them from cops and freeing them from jails and so on, are equivalent somehow to their enemies, cops, courts and jails. So as you go on to say, you're pretty well versed in some of the pretty compelling arguments against abolition. So I thought we should tackle that head on, especially with this audience, who I think are pretty familiar with other abolitionisms. Why abolition in response to all of those criticisms? Yeah, well, yeah, as you can see, I'm almost like fluent in all the ways in which it seems like a really unstrategic and bad idea to use this language. And um, I'm almost like sometimes persuaded, uh, like, <laughs> but <laughs> not quite. Right? <laughs> um, I was been, you know, writing and publishing and talking about full surrogacy now. I've had such ample opportunity to really get challenged on this, have endless conversations and really go and do my research. And um, the, the upshot is that I am pretty confident in saying that abolition is what the horizon is. I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm like against, you know, um, um, you know, anti-family, you know, progressive policy if we could, but we're not, you know, that, that's almost as unspeakable, frankly, as saying abolish the family, like criticizing the family is, uh, you know, almost unthinkable in the, in the, in the So I'm not sure that's necessarily like a response to what you just said, but, you know, I, I would be, I, I would be up for all sorts of, um, you know, campaigns that, um, you know, I would be sympathetic or not unsympathetic to ways of like, making the family less necessary materially that maybe even rhetorically couch themselves as like you know pro-family if you like like it's not really about that for me I'm not sort of hung up intensely on on on, on terminology but I do think abolition is the horizon because you don't reform a system of organized austerity um which is which is what this is right and um I went and poked around a little bit in places that, where I thought I was, you know, kind of familiar with, with the terrain. For example, you know, this bridge called my back, that anthology, or the anthology, the, the black woman that Tony Cade, or later Tony Cade Bumbera, put out in 1970. And I, I had never really noticed before, maybe never cared to really look, that there are, there are voices in there calling for the destruction of the family from a, a revolutionary socialist black feminist perspective, um, which are actually resisting and engaging with arguments um, that, uh, you know, that, that there is a, a need, you know, to uplift um, black patriarchy, uh, the black nuclear household, and to, you know, um, uh, sort of stand on the shoulders of sociologists like E. Franklin Frazier, who, um, you know, uh, wanted to tell a story about slavery that said that there was always a very respectable, uh, property-oriented, patriarchal, heterosexual black family there all the time. And Hortense Spillers was very scathing about that. 
um, when she wrote her very epochal sort of Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, she went so far as to say that E. Franklin Fraser, this kind of uh, historian of black uh, familiarity and black um, respectability, was pretty much the same as um, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the author of the Moynihan Report, in the sense that uh, for both of these figures, um, the, the, the sort of uh, the spectre of a matriarchy is something really obscene. Um, and for Spillers, the problem goes so deep of, you know, the, uh, the enslavement um, of, of, of black flesh uh, that, that, that there is a need. So she's not really interested, um, she says explicitly in Mama's Baby Puppets, maybe, in, in whether or not it makes sense to call the forms of kinship that we, you know, that, that existed historically under slavery families. She says that seems to her, I love her phrasing, supremely impertinent, right? She's impertinent, impertinent, not interesting. Clearly, she says, right, that uh, the, 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 the care, labor, the skill in kinning that was developed, um, uh, you know, under slavery are uh, just as good as, at least, you know, as, as whatever was going on in the white bourgeois nuclear household, she says. But there's a deeper problem for her that there is an insurgent social subject that is female, but not woman, that has no place in the world. And for Spillers, well, you know, it, you can read it different ways because she's a complicated figure. But I think a very legitimate reading is, is to read that, that text as saying, you know, that there is no, there is no home for, for black women in the family. And Tiffany Latabo King basically reads it that way in a wonderful essay that came out called um, uh, Black Feminisms and Pessimism, Abolishing Moynihan's Negro Family. Um, and, and so, she, so anyway, that was maybe a bit too scholarly, but like I haven't really, like, if I'm going to do my homework so that I can find uh, a, a way of really being sure um, that it is in fact backwards to say that family abolition is sort of you know, bad for anti-racism or bad for um, the abolition of whiteness. It's actually the opposite. And I think if you try and reserve um, a sort of, you know, a, a, a black family, frankly, in the United States context, um, and sort of save it from abolition, you're getting it precisely backwards because it is the black radical tradition or parts thereof that have that have been the ones schooling us in why uh, there is no abundance there. There, there is. There is no hope there for the world, ultimately. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I, I think I take what you're saying to be there's already even more scarcity in a black family than there is elsewhere, right? Because it's a kind of retreat from scarcity that exists elsewhere. I think you helped me find this, this phrase as, as my editor. Um, we were talking about it, and I think you said something like, um, uh, the family is a shield um, that people take up to survive a war, and it makes a lot of sense to do that. Um, but over time, if we sort of forget that the shield is a shield and that there is a war on, and we start mistaking it for, you know, nature and and the way things always have to be, we're forgetting that maybe the war doesn't have to go on forever, right? Um, yeah, I think that I think that's true. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning about 
you know, essentially a family being about privatizing care. And if you think about it that way, why would it make sense to only privatize care for people who are already the most vulnerable, right? Exactly. Um, so you've talked a bit about the scholarly kind of history and some of your kind of co-thinkers that you've you've been thinking about this question with. Um, in the book, you take up um, a somewhat more kind of organizing history, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about. You know, you're not the first person to think about abolishing the family. Actually, far from it. It's a very rich and varied tradition across both the Marxist and the queer left and others. Um, and I wonder if you could tell people here a bit more about that kind of who you're, who you think the kind of predecessors are of this this line of thinking, since it's so kind of often missing now from from the left. Um, just to say, my book is really short. <laughs> um, it's actually, I think, shorter than Michelle O'Brien's essay on the topic in Endnotes journal. So if you want a really in-depth history, that's where you should go. It's a very, very good history of the meaning of a well, of that way. Oh no, by mine. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry. No, but I know that thinking is cute. Mine is a potted history. Um, and the story I tell brings together disparate characters, including um, Charles Fourier. Um, I grew up in France, so I'm allowed to say it that way. <laughs> um, Marx, Proton, Engels, several of their both socialist and anarchist contemporaries, um, Alexandra Kollontai, uh, Sheila McFirestone, and her comrades, um, the Third World Lesbian and Gay Internationals of the 1970s, um, Gay Power and Gay Liberation generally, Children's Liberation, maybe you haven't heard of that one, the National Welfare Rights Organization, which I think had uh, wings, strands, that were, that were genuinely family abolitionist, um, wages for housework, wages against housework, as is to say. Um, and the recent revival, finally, in um, transgender Marxism and repro-utopianism in the 21st century, starting with, you know, Jules Joanne Gleason, who's in this room, and, and, uh, and Kate Doyle Griffith and others in, in about 2015. And there's so many, so many pockets of uh, transgender Marxist uh, family abolitionism all over the world now, actually. It's, it's really exciting. And there's, there's plenty of it in Spain, there's plenty of it in Japan. It's just, it's kind of amazing. Um, so, to go back though, the history I tell is an attempt to kind of make visible a dual strand family abolitionism. So, basically, it's coming from inside and outside the house. <laughs> um, you have the figure of the sort of insurgent housewife, and then you have, you know, the indigenous uh, militants whose children are being, you know, stolen and, uh, you know, re-educated. Um, and having the family violently imposed on them via the imposition of marriage and, you know, early settlers required heads of households um, to own property, to be male. Um, and this, this was, you know, family as colonization. And so I think it's possible to read the history of resistance to that as a form of family abolitionism. Um, and so there's these, there's these two things going on at once, right? There's people like, you know, the Boston Gay Liberation Front in the 70s, you know, uh, mounting an assault on the, on the, on the family from, from within um, and, and, and casting themselves rhetorically outside, you know, saying, 
you know, come comrade gaze, you know, we've been cast out, we should stay the fuck out. <laughs> like, we're not trying to get back in, right? Which is not the politics of um, Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, you know, that's, that's the potted version of the potted history. Yeah, I think, um, to me, it makes the most sense, or the most kind of intuitive sense, for um, family abolition to be a kind of feminist and queer project. You know, historically it has been a kind of feminist subject who's critiqued the family um, from the position of the housewife and the mother who is kind of burdened by most of the labour there, and by the queer children who are often violently um, expelled from the family. I wonder if you could talk a bit about where what happened to that? Why why are there no family abolitionists, feminists except us and some of us? You know, where did that go from the feminist tradition? When did that stop being um, part of a kind of mainstream feminism? And and I think also part of the kind of radical queer left. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, gosh, I'm not sure if like prepped for it. I know there are great books on what the fuck was the 80s. Um, and I, you know, I think I do have a little bit on it. But, I mean, the, the demise of, you know, sexual liberation ideals, um, the entire sort of utopian project. I mean, the, the defeat of the long 60s, you know, um, maybe can't be overstated, but I'm not even sure. I'm, not, I'm still not sure we actually, like, talk about it. We talk about it, but I'm not sure we talk about it in the right way. Like, almost like grieving is necessary, right? Like, sorry, I, I'm sort of, like, crouching away from you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the effect is. Plus, there are people here with policy. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I wonder if, yeah, I guess I'm just trying to suggest that, you know, um, anti capitalism was totally pounded into the dust, right, at the end of the long 60s. Maybe that's just not fully like thinkable or graspable or grievable collectively but like that's kind of what happened but you know also AIDS happened obviously um and uh yeah you know the the, the right wing got super organized um invented a sort of pedophile industrial complex there's still I think still after all these years the left hasn't like got its shit together to actually have a response to the grooming um libel the, the grooming smear um and you know the 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 80s was so powerful that it you know it didn't just sort of rewrite history like you know Alice Eccles is wonderful account of how cultural feminists won um, they were the, one, the last ones left standing they were totally dickheads even at the time everyone thought that they were right you know but they they, they were the ones who wrote the history of what revolutionary feminism and women's liberation was and so that's kind of what we still think. Um, and, 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 and they sort of went, you know, they managed to, to, to completely rewrite women's liberation. You have, you have people like Gloria Steinem. Also, you know, I will say, massive respect for Barbara Ehrenreich on many counts, but she said, she said this shit too. She said, she said, feminism has never been about attacking or criticizing or abolishing the family. Uh, it's like, um, no, <laughs> it's really, it's really not true. It's really not true. Um, the, the private nuclear household was, and I think is properly considered, 
the, 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 the prime object of, of feminist and queer critique, in a way. Um, and that, that was a, a, a known, I'm not going to say mainstream, but a very known position. And the 80s managed to actively erase that, put people on the back foot. There's a wonderful essay by, um, God damn it. Ah, sorry. What would you call it? Uh, the family love it or leave it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Nora Aronowitz's mom. Ellen Willis. Ellen Willis, of course. Sorry, um, I've been on all day. Um, Ellen Willis wrote this incredible lament in, I think, 1979, uh, just basically saying um, about all of her comrades. What happened? Why are you pretending we didn't do family abolition? Like you, you, you seem to be believing this yourself. You've kidded yourselves that we weren't, we weren't saying that. And it's really sad. The fact that we lost is no reason to pretend that we were wrong to begin with. And it's a powerful piece. So um, I think that's in the village voice. Um, yeah, I feel like the fact that we lost is no reason to pretend that we were wrong. Could be. Theme of the entire left, to be honest. Um, which actually brings me to my next question. Um, obviously, family abolition has gone missing from feminism and has also gone missing, although it's returning to um, the kind of queer left. Um, it's also really gone missing from socialism. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about why you, you know, we're at a conference called Socialism, as you'll see, are in some sense socialists. I wonder if you could talk about why you think that family abolition is a socialist issue. Um, and then maybe we can get on to what you might say to someone who disagreed. Hmm. Um, okay, yeah, I mean, um, there's, I don't know if perhaps people caught uh, a, a, an essay that went viral from a British uh, writer called Rebecca May Johnson a few years ago that was called I Dream of Canteens. Um, and it, it was really beautiful. Um, and it sort of departed from, um, like a, a description of what it feels like as a working class person to be in London um, or the central London working at the British Library, having nowhere at all where you can afford to eat. Um, I'm having that experience at this conference. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a pretty, I'm not, this isn't a criticism of, of the organizers at all. This is a absolutely like a brilliantly held, organized, cared for, conceptualized conference. Um, but those, 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 the fact that there is only like a, you know, a higher agency as space for us all, 2,000 of us to talk about socialism, it, it impacts the body, right? Like when a, a can of pale ale costs $11, like you, you, you know, your body feels that. And Rebecca May Johnson is talking about how, how she folds herself in, like in shame into the, into sort of central London space, gentrified spaces, right? It's very powerful, and then she talks about canteens <laughs> and all the times that socialism uh, succeeded at bringing out beautiful, massive, you know, uh, common food provision, public food provision, and spaces where you will get fed, you know, and the, the affective and bodily like feeling of that, and you know, there are there are sort of intimations of that, like you know, she talks about the IKEA canteen and how like there's a little bit of pleasure for her there as a glimpse of what could be, and then you know, she talks about like the sorts of social democratic war effort type stuff that that, that fed millions of people, you know, in Britain that people have forgotten about. Like it's an amazing history, but yeah, I mean, so 
one thing that is central to family abolitionism in my mind is um, what Dolores Highland, the radical geographer, called kitchenless cities. Um, so what she means by that is that yeah, the you know the private kitchen is uh, a site of oppression for women and children, um, and having the production of food uh, be public <laughs> is one of the best things you can do <laughs> as, as a socialist and as a feminist, right? Um, um, and yeah, so that's one thing I would say. I wonder if you let me like read a tiny bit of um, Geordie Rosenberg's afterword from Transgender Marxism, I think it's relevant. I'm not the boss. Okay, right, 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 right. <laughs> well, are you not the... <laughs> um, so, this, um, Geordie Rosenberg asserts in his afterword to Transgender Marxism, edited by Jules and L. O'Rourke, how necessary it is to include an abolitionist epidemiological ethos in the ambit of the kinds of imagined large-scale leftist self-reliance that arise in a time of pandemic. Lest such projects contract into reiterations of nuclearism at worst or coterie culture at medium worst. Rosenberg looks to W.E.B. Du Bois's biography of John Brown. Quote, sick with a bout of scarlet fever, Brown responds by protecting those outside the perimeter of the family home. Du Bois, when his children were ill, he took care of us himself. I mean, I think this is the, the children speaking. And if he saw persons coming to the house, he would go to the gate and meet them, not wishing them to come in for fear of spreading the disease. Um, the lavish narrative attention Du Bois pays to this interlude, which is just one example of the countless times he extols Brown's life-reproducing labor and care work suggests a glimpse of a people's epidemiology that is the near obverse of the petty bourgeois neo-homesteading of the COVID-19 period. For Du Bois' Brown, disease doesn't trigger a sequestering or a saving of the white family from the world, rather the white family is the pathogen from which the world must be protected. So, Rosenberg kind of says in the conclusion, if the white family is the inauthentic but frenetically propped up solution to the metabolic rift, a people's epidemiology, following Du Bois's John Brown, offers the horizon of repairing that rift. So not repair as a return to some pre-rift fantasy, and not repair as suture, this is all very fancy words, sorry. Rather, repair of the rift as a kind of family abolition, the refusal to sacralize the reproduction of whiteness. Protection is offered outward rather than hoarded. And that's that's an answer to your question of why family abolition is socialism, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's funny that you mentioned the hotel because um, there is obviously a version of a hotel that is yeah. incredibly socialist, right? If the bar was just free, it would be a great time. <laughs> we all have our rooms, we have a private space, we have beds to go to, and then we have a place we can eat and we can hang out and we can socialize and we have rooms where we can have meetings. If we took over the hotels, life would be better, okay? Um, I, don't, I didn't come up with that. This is, this is also a very old idea. There were apartment hotels that were somewhat explicitly feminist, um, including in New York, that were legislated out of business. But it, it became 
Um, you know, real estate makes a lot of money, and having people sharing occupancy wasn't wasn't a viable model for the real estate market. Um, I actually there's a there's another book coming um, that um, I know that you're a fan of, um, by Helen Hester and Nick Sobercheck, uh called After Work, which is a kind of history of the home and and a, an attempt to think through some of those questions, but a lot more kind of architecturally. And I think that's one of the things that we haven't gotten to and didn't get to in the book is is also the kind of the way that space makes the family, the way that housing is, you know, so designed for nuclear units and it's very hard to make a home that's not that shape. Um, so, yeah, I, I encourage you guys to think about it once it comes. Um, I want to take it in a slightly different direction now. I mean, it's not so different. Um, you know, we all hopefully heard um, Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore last night say that abolition is small C communism, which I think is absolutely correct and is, is also applicable here. Um, but I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about, I guess this is a bit of a naughty question. Um, most of us are used to thinking about abolition in terms of the state, right? In terms of the police, the prison industrial complex, maybe the border, the jail, um, which are all formerly arms of the state. It's tax money that is paying for all of these things. So it makes sense. Um, it's easy to see how one gets to an abolitionist politics that redistributes that tax money to do better things than build cages. It's not so obvious to see how you, what kind of demands you raise or, or how family abolition as a demand relates to those other abolitions and kind of what Ruthie calls the social wage, the, the tax money. And I wonder if, if you might tackle that for us. Um, yeah, I think this question of whether the family is, in some sense, you know, a wing of the state, like formally or informally, is really, really, really important and interesting. Um, is it some kind of hybrid, like, state market institution wearing a kind of invisibility cloak, like, masquerading as something natural? Um, I think during key phases of settler colonial incursion onto indigenous lands and indigenous populations, it was pretty sort of clear, clear, like compared to today, that you know, that the the, the, as the violent imposition that I was talking about of the family um, onto populations was uh, an extension of, of, of the state, a, a, a need to literally make administratively legible. Um, and fold it into the, the new nation state, you know, forms of like supposedly like illegible, uh, non productive modes of being and modes of people making, right? Um, I think more recently there's been a kind of organized abandonment of the family, to use that, uh, a Gilmore phrase, um, even as the family. Um, as Melinda Cooper shows in her phenomenal book, um, Family Values, remains absolutely central in both neoliberal and neoconservative forms of governance. Um, and I'll just mention that Melinda Cooper, I believe, begins that book with a reflection on how the family has always been in crisis. Like, if that's, if that's part of it that I could have almost given as a definition. Um, it's, it's always in crisis. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's part of its whole deal, like, you know, um, except it's not, right? Like Sarah Briette has this great phrase reviewing Cooper being like, yeah, you know, but the, 
the family isn't really abolished enough, right? Isn't it like it, it is a very mainstream sort of political lament, really, that the, that the family uh, is dying or dead, right? Uh, but that's not family abolition. <laughs> like, capitalism is not actually abolishing the family. It's casting it in this kind of, um, you know, fake embattled role that mobilizes us to cling to the scarcities that we've got um, because of that. I'm not sure I said that very well, but I would like to ask Ruth Wilson Gilmore what she thinks about um, the idea of the family as part of a kind of anti-state state, state uh, whether we can potentially think of the private household as a wing of that anti-state state, um, because obviously the, the family, the market and the state, I think, together make possible the reproduction of capitalist society, but it is also, you know, simultaneously very true and I think much more common on the left to talk about all the ways in which um, uh, you know, families are not helped. This is all true, right? This is all completely true. Like, um, you know, the, the state has organized abandonment of, uh, you know, the vast majority, really, of, of those we call mothers, right? Um, but I think, yeah, I think the abolitionist horizon that I want to add and insist on is that even if all the people who currently mother in society were somehow magically lavished with public money and unmolested by border guards, police, social workers, etc., CPS, um, we would still need to completely deprivatize care. That's that's what I think. Um, and so that's another answer to, to your question as to why abolition rather than reform. Um, and the models that talk about sort of chosen family as the solution are, you know, do not structurally address the problem of those not chosen. Um, yeah, that's a really good and powerful point. Um, we are almost out of time. Um, I wondered if you would do us the service of reading a little section from the final chapter where you talk about um, the maid. Can you find it, Yeah, I do. It's right there. I know it's not. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you. She'll do everything she tells me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. So this, 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 this actually originated in a comment Rosie made to me about how um, I should be more effusive about how like we think family abolition is crazy and unheard of but when you sort of squint and glimpse like all the anti-family sentiment in popular culture it's like everywhere you know and by the same token there's sort of like ideal versions of family values smothered in everyday life they're iterated emptily in everything from fashion branding to ecological ethics symposia all around us we can glimpse the filaments of the family's dialectical explosion. Maria, our cleaner, is part of the family. Here at Olive Garden, everyone is family. <laughs> We're all family here at Trust Air TM because we care. Say hello to the great family of humanity. We use 30% renewable energy because the island's endangered birds are family. The great planetary family. Family is as family does. Welcome to the city of brotherly love. 
We believe in kinship between all living things. Bullshit. Imagine what would have to happen in order for the staff at restaurants and airlines to be welcome to input your name as a guarantor for their student debt. <laughs> Consider what would make the fashion retailer Kinship TM. That one's real. Um, and its website currently celebrates the bond we share and states that we are all kin. Uh, what would make them turn up to an eviction defense on your behalf? Ask yourself what needs to change before Maria the cleaner is able to add her name to the children's birth certificates if she wants to. Then ask yourself whether birth certificates are really necessary. If these thought experiments seem silly, we have to consider the possibility that kinship as a value isn't worth all that much. Let me be, let me be more direct. I, I don't particularly like what kinship affords us ethically or politically. I don't think it is doing a lot of good. Uh, what's worse, I think it is getting in the way of better possibilities. And as Tiffany Latago King says, there are other ways of naming each other as relations. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.